to our July exchange essay. I'm Jillian McLean, your Director of Communications for the Student Assembly Board of Directors. And I'm very excited to have Dr. Lori Hack here with me tonight. She gave the fourth and it was fantastic. And so tonight we'll kind of be discussing that lecture and kind of like her career and where she's at now and where she started. So Dr. Hack, go ahead and introduce yourself, maybe some of the schooling you went through, some of the accomplishments you had. Okay, um, thanks Jillian and thanks for inviting me. This is really kind of fun, I think. I'll tell you, get it in and out. So I became a physical therapist in the first master's degree program in the country uh, and graduated quite some time ago in 1971. Um, immediately after that, uh, started practicing, but learned pretty quickly that I wanted to gain some more skills. So I went and got an MBA uh, a year after I graduated from PT school. And while I was doing that, I uh, worked part-time as a faculty member at Penn. I got my MBA at Wharton, and so I was at Penn. And I said, you know, I really like this teaching stuff. So then I stayed around, got a PhD, and just as I finished, they closed the program at Penn. So oh. um, I thought, well, okay, <laughs> now what? Um, at that point, I was pretty committed to Philadelphia. I met the man who was going to be my husband, and actually, we, we had a daughter, and, and I guess we're going to stay here. So we opened a practice, three of us that had left there, and it was, uh, it was a, ended up being a pretty big practice. Uh, we had a research arm, an education arm, we owned an exercise center, and we did uh, home care and outpatient care, and there's some skilled nursing facility care. So almost everything but acute care. And then about 10 All years later. That's a lot of things. <laughs> it was a lot of things. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of things. About 10 years later, uh, my partners thought that they wanted to become more traditional academics, so we kind of parted. And um, so I, I went to Temple and taught there for about 10 or 15 years and um, left Temple about 10 years ago. And I've been what I call an itinerant faculty member ever since. I get to teach when and where I want. Some years, that's as many as eight courses a year, which is a lot. And uh, some courses, uh, some years, not so much. Uh, almost all of it distance. Uh, it's, all, it's all been in the transition DPT programs. So um, that's, well, so that's really cool. Yeah, it's been, a, you know, a lot of different things. It's meant I've got to stay right here in Philadelphia and teach everywhere from Montana to uh, Massachusetts and, uh, wow. and, Florida, and Florida. So just all over the country and, and not have to leave. And I've had students all over the world in war zones, in Europe, uh, everywhere. It's really been wonderful. It's a, it's a great way to interact with people. That's completely incredible. Um, and not to mention your Catherine Worthingham fellow. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, that happened somewhere in the middle there. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. If you guys have never done an exchange before, uh, you, we're going to interact with you. Uh, my board of directors is kind of in the background in the comments. So if you have questions about her journey or the McMillan lecture throughout, just place that in the comments. And there's also a conversation happening on Twitter. So just use the hashtag exchange essay throughout the whole thing and uh, engage in those as well. So I'll start it off. Um, Alex wants to know kind of like a small summary of the lecture that you gave in. in <laughs> we'll okay. dive into more specifics, but students that weren't able to attend next. Sure. Um, actually, the people at APTA, the writers there are wonderful and they've done some, some nice little summaries. And, and then afterwards, uh, they put up a nice summary. But basically, the title tells it all. It's called Wis Wisdom and Courage. And a portion of the school was, a portion of the talk was about 
how to um, use what we know about better decision making from a field called behavioral economics. And a portion of the talk was about that as a profession, we need to step up to the plate and take responsibility more for the social uh, aspect of, of life uh, more than we have in the past. So that's it in a, in a nutshell. Well, I love it. And I'm so excited to talk about it. Um, Cause I know, I know I left that lecture inspired to try to like gung ho, I'm gonna change the world. Cause as students, that's kind of how we are. We're like, we're gonna change it. How? I'm not sure, but we're gonna do it. Yes, um, of course. <laughs> My personal favorite quote from your lecture was, we are smart and getting smarter all the time, but are we wise? Um, so as students, what can we do while we're still in school to begin becoming wise while we're still getting smart? Well, so I, that's, that is essentially what the next whole 15 or 20 minutes of my talk was about, as, as you know, and it wasn't, it's the same advice for everybody. Um, we all make mistakes in decision-making. They're called biases or, or traps. And uh, we're very lucky that over the last 25 or 30 years, people have, have begun to understand that, they've done research about it, they've documented it. So um, we need to become aware of those traps. You can read about them lots of places. I suggested Dan Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. He's one of the fathers of this whole uh, move in behavioral economics. He got the Nobel Prize for his work, so, but he writes in a way that's very accessible. So I, I suggest that book to everybody. It's it's a great book. Uh, and th these biases and traps happen to all of us in all stages of our life. Um, I spoke mostly about clinical decision making. But I will tell you, I when I was teaching this to entry level students, I would teach them about some of these biases. And I'd say, no, you don't have any. This was the first semester, first of PT school. You don't have any clinical experience. Go home and think about a mistake you've made that was related to one of these biases and write me a little essay on it. And I would get the, the bad decisions they made about buying cars, the bad decisions <laughs> they made about staying with a boyfriend or a girlfriend oh. when they shouldn't have. And they all got very personal. <laughs> yeah, I tried to put that aside, but they were great examples because we make these mistakes all the time. And so learning about, uh, learning about them and then thinking about what you can do to, to not make the mistake, just to pause or to talk to somebody else and talk it through. Uh, we all need to do it, it's not just students. I completely but agree. Yeah. That, those are good ways. It's super easy to like, get in your own little groove and then just stay there. But I think especially as everything is changing in our culture that we have to kind of explore other options, see how other people are thinking so we can treat our patients the best we can. Right, and certainly I, I did allude to this a few times in the talk, right now in this country, we um, are, a lot of us have fallen into the trap of just wanting to hear about the things we already agree with or we already know. And that's called confirmation bias or aspects of availability bias. And the whole country is doing this and it's just not doing us any good. So, um, you know, the more we can be open to other opinions and to other ideas, the better off we'll be. I love that. We have some questions rolling in from students. I'm very excited. Okay. Yeah. Um, Kate Zanker is asking, how can students learn how to distinguish between groupthink and the wisdom of the crowd? Uh, oh, two of my favorites. Somebody must have been at the talk. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, you know, the, the wisdoms, wisdom of the crowds is such a, um, a uh, it's the right uh, medication 
for groupthink, if you will. If you think of groupthink as being um, a, a, almost a disease, and it, it almost can be, and, and when it happens, people aren't listening to anybody outside of their group, they don't ask each other questions, they uh, listen to a leader who um, is not interested in hearing other people's opinions, and, and, and it causes real problems. So there are many examples of this. You all are way too young to remember the first major failure of a, of a shuttle, uh, the one that came down with the school teacher on it. Uh, and it was because the O-rings froze. It was too cold in Florida when it went up and the O-rings froze and the, um, and the shuttle crashed and people died. People in NASA knew that was going to happen, but nobody would listen to them. It was a classic example of groupthink, not being open to uh, ideas. So wisdom of the crowds is just the opposite. Get as many different opinions as you can. Get as many ideas in the room. Think think about everything you can. Talk to as many people as you can, and and then gather it all together and make your decisions. So it, it, wisdom of the crowds is the solution to the problem of groupthink. Um, there is no book called groupthink, but there's a lot written. If you just go Google groupthink, you'll get tons and tons of information. And wisdom of the crowds is a great book. I strongly recommend that one too. I, I know I have all these book things I can do while I'm studying for boards and like take a break. Sure. Maybe I'll get some books. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> that book actually has two parts to it. One is very quantitative because they talk about how you can take people's assessments. Their classic example is that you, if you're at the fair and they've got a steer there and everybody has to come guess the weight of the steer, the little slips of paper put into the jar come closer to the actual weight of the steer than the experts, the, the, the steer judges who come by and tell you what the, the steer weighs. So it's, there's all this mathematical stuff about getting numbers from people. Second half of the book is more about how people interact with each other in groups. So if you only have a limited little, limited amount of time there during your uh, you're studying for the boards, do, do the do the back half of the book. Do the back half first. I can do that. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. We have another question from Nick Waltz. He says, Dr. Heck, thank you for agreeing to this. Um, in 2000, you co-authored Expertise in PT Practice. How would you say building off of that paper that we as clinicians can truly commit and become eventual experts in PT practice? Wow. Uh, so thanks for mentioning that. It's um, That work is was sort of the start of my thinking about everything I talked about in, in my talk. Um, we learned so much from these wonderful PTs. We went out, we did qualitative research, interviewed um, PTs in four specialty areas, neurology, orthopedics, geriatrics, and pediatrics. And, and we learned what, that there are four characteristics that really uh, describe these experts. Their, their knowledge, their clinical decision-making, their virtue, and uh, their use of movement. And um, if you think about all four of those, and then we described a model where we said there are students, and there are novices, and there are experienced clinicians, and then there are expert clinicians. And uh, you know, it takes at least seven years to move from novice into just experience. So you guys have, you have a lot of time ahead of you to learn and to think and to, to get better. So don't expect it all to happen that first week after you, you have to get out there and practice. But, um, so thinking about each of those things and recognizing how important all four of them are um, to being a really great PT uh, is, is, I think it, it started me thinking about all of this stuff. So. Um, we did have a couple of papers and, and we have a book that's still available and 
it's really fun to read about the specialty areas for those of you interested in residency. Yes, uh, me especially. And right. some other people on this are definitely interested. So uh, maybe someone can find the link and drop it and hint, hint, and board um, <laughs> on that for me. Let's see. Um, Allie has a question. She says, when you first started your career, did you ever imagine that you would be doing, like, being this involved in academia? Oh, this involved in academia. Yeah, I kind of did, but in a totally different way. While I was in PT school, I thought I was going to get a PhD in anatomy. I really loved anatomy, and I thought that's what I was going to end up doing. And um, then I went to work and, and practiced at a, at a city hospital in Philadelphia that's since closed. And so then I got interested, and that's why I went and got my MBA. I thought, you know, I could be the best PT in the world, but the healthcare system's in real big trouble. And before I knew it, I was down this whole other path. And I thought a few years later, I guess I'm not going to get a PhD in anatomy. So, uh, but I did always think that I wanted to be involved in teaching. I really enjoy teaching. Yeah. And, and I love my research too, but I, teaching's wonderful. I love it. What is your PhD in? It's actually in educational administration. So about as far from anatomy as you can get. <laughs> and all of my teaching has been pretty far away too. I teach in all the behavioral sciences as opposed to the most basic science that we've got in PT, the anatomy. So, but I still love anatomy. It's so fascinating. Anatomy is great. I know I was one of those nerds that just loved cadaver lab and my classmates oh, thought yeah. I was crazy. Yeah, but. yeah. no, everybody, every PT I know loves cadaver lab. They just are so eager. They, they're they happy to go back and do it over and over again. Yeah. It's oh, great. yeah, in a heartbeat. Yeah. Kyle Stableton, Stableton wants to know, what was the journey to becoming a fellow of the APTA like? Well, so I, I can't say I had a journey to do that. I mean, I, I never set out to become a fellow. I never set out to, to be asked to do the Macmillan. I, um, I will, you know, you learn all this stuff in school and they told you, um, you know, you need your plan. I never had a five-year plan. Um, I just I sort of looked at what was the next step and, um, and just kept working. And so I, um, I, I'm, you know, don't tell your faculty that I said these five-year plans are useless. Um, I don't know if they're useless. They, I just never did them. I, I never said, this is what I want to be. This is, you know, I, I need to, I just um, sort of looked at the opportunities right in front of me. And, and several times in my career, the things I really loved doing were taken away from me. They closed the program I taught in at Penn. Uh, my practice closed because my partners wanted to close it. Uh, I actually had a, a major, um, I, I didn't choose to leave Temple, but the, the dean and I had a disagreement over something. So, you know, um, I, um, it, it, it just, so then, then I'd have to say, okay, I've got to find something new to do. And I'd move on to that next new thing and, and just try to do my best. So no long-term journey. I, I, so I can't answer that one. <laughs> I just kept doing the things I like doing and, and was so lucky to work with such wonderful people. One of the things we found in the expertise work was the importance of mentors. So I will, I will encourage all of you, go out and find as many mentors as you can in as many different ways, but surround yourself with the best people you can work with. That means you earn a few thousand dollars less per year and it takes you a little longer to pay off your student debt. That's okay because this is your 50 or 60 year career ahead of you. Uh, so work with the very best people you can find and, and you'll find them that you do better because they're challenging you to do that. 
That's that's perfect. Um, it makes it gives me hope because sometimes my five year plan I have it for about a month. Yeah, and then it's changed, and now I want yeah. to do something else. Yeah, and then so. you know life happens. You have a five year plan, and then you meet someone, or you get pregnant if you're a woman. You know things happen, <laughs> <laughs> and there you go. Okay, gotta guess I'm gonna do something else now. No more. Fun. <laughs> Um, while I was um, reading over some of the McMillan lecture again, I saw the quote that you said, when we rely too heavily on outcomes in the past, we make mistakes when we're planning for the future. Can you elaborate on that a little bit for me? Well, actually, that was talking about relying on remembering our outcomes rather than actually knowing our outcomes. And so if we're, the, the, I think I was talking about selective recall there as well. So uh, if we, if we, all, if we rely on what we remember about our outcomes, we will either um, overemphasize how well we did or perhaps overemphasize how badly we did, depending on our personalities. And that's not a true, it's not a true record of our outcomes. So therefore, we use bad information as we're planning for the future, which could lead me to comment on the outcomes registry, which you said you were going to ask me about. So yeah, I'll, just, right. I'll just go comment on that right now. <laughs> so the, the beauty of the outcomes registry, which APTA is doing, or, or any other way of documenting your actual outcomes, uh, and particularly we're talking about clinical outcomes, will mean that you can go back to a, a record that's an accurate record of what happened. And that's a much better um, tool for you to use than, than your memory. Our memories are faulty, very, very faulty. So the outcomes registry that you guys are going to get to use, you're so lucky that you're going to have this from the beginning of your careers. It's just going to be wonderful for you. I'm so excited to have that start implemented. You know, as students, we get to reap like, the benefits of it later on because it's yeah. now established. Yeah. Well, we have a question from Nat, or Nat Jesus, Matt Nape, who's a fresh PTA, and he says, are there any tips or experiences you can share? for a new grad PTA who would love to become an educator someday? Huh. Um, so I know that, that interestingly, he, he probably knows this, I don't know if you all know this, there are more PTA programs in the country than there are PT programs. So he, he has lots of, of um, opportunities. The faculties aren't as large, so there aren't necessarily more faculty positions. But it's my understanding that in uh, PTA education, uh, People need at least a master's degree. So if, if Nate's interested in, in really getting into PTA education, first off, he can certainly start being involved in clinical education, uh, not as a brand new grad, but in a year, you know, uh, and then think about getting a master's degree in an area that, that he's interested in. And, um, and also let the programs that are near where you're working, this is be the same for PTs as well as PTAs, get in touch with those programs. Offer to be involved in labs, uh, get engaged, find out if you really do like teaching. It's really different on the other side of the desk sometimes. So, um, so get involved, get the right degree uh, credentials, um, and uh, and just keep plugging at it. Yeah, I love it. And we have a very similar question from Nick O'Hanlon. He says, "For those of us who are interested in pursuing academia, what's something you wish you knew as a student about it?" Hmm. Hmm. Wow. I don't know. Um, I, mean, I don't know. That's that's such an interesting question. It's not like I found something about it that I thought, oh, this is horrible. 
Um, and I wish I'd known this before I started because I've really pretty much loved it. I will say, you know, every single job, no matter what it is, being a practicing PT within a, in a clinical site, being an academic, being a researcher, there are parts of it that just aren't fun. They're just, you know, I don't know anybody who has a job where they say every single minute of it every day is fun. It just isn't. So there's just as in, in clinical practice, you know, having to get those notes written, it's just not fun. Um, so doing things like, you know, believe it or not, grading papers is just not always all that much fun, you know? So it, there's just stuff that isn't, but, um, I guess I've always been willing to, to, I mean, I can't imagine not working hard. So I've never found it difficult to, to do. It's hard work to be a faculty member, but I've never found that to be a problem. So I can't say that there's something that surprised me or, um, and, and I, my husband's an academic, so we, we share all this stuff and it's, um, it's been a wonderful career. What is the most surprising part of being um, a faculty member? Surprising. Or most uh, you know, I, I've been teaching a really long time, so it's hard for me to go back and think what surprised me. <laughs> um, I mean, it's certainly it's, um, I was really nervous in the beginning when I started to lecture. Um, I've gotten over that. Um, <laughs> and, and then it was really nervous when I started talking to my peers and I've, and I've done better with that. I've gotten better than that. I was a little nervous uh, last month when I started out with the Macmillan, <laughs> but, but I got, I got into that too. I got over being nervous. So, you just um, oh, thank you. I, you know, I guess things that surprise me, it's, it's just probably the same thing that surprised you as a clinician. When you think you're doing a really good job and you're trying really hard and then somebody just says you're terrible. That, that's a, that, surprised me. Um, not that I couldn't learn from being terrible, but you know, when people say you're terrible and it's because of things you think aren't important or that you didn't even think you did, that that's tough to deal with sometimes. But um, I don't know, you know, by the time I became a teacher, I'd already been in school like 20 years. So it wasn't <laughs> like school was a surprise. So I, I don't know, there weren't too many surprises. Well, that's good to know for those of us that maybe want to go into academia one day. Yeah, yeah. Just be prepared to work hard, just like you do in the clinic. All right. I'm ready. Um, I don't remember who this question is from, but here's a question. As a student coming into the world of PT, I wanted to do a million different things with my career, my education, service, and personal life. How do you focus your energy or know where to begin, especially when we idolize individuals who have done it all? <laughs> well, you shouldn't idolize anybody because <laughs> even people who appear to have done it all, you know, the things they failed at. I mean, I, I've failed at a lot of things in my career. And so that's one piece of advice is just because you fail at something uh, that in that minute doesn't mean you have failed totally. And um, so you need to just say, okay, what am I going to do next? And, and then go on and, and keep working at it. So I, I often share, I've shared this with many, many people. I failed my comprehensive exam at the end of my master's degree program. Um, so, <laughs> and here we are, you know, so, so, you know, you can face failure, but still succeed. Uh, one of the things that's so wonderful about PT, and, and this is becoming a little bit less so, but it's still true you don't have to make a commitment when you're 23 what you want to do in PT. 
um, even if you go ahead and do a residency or even a fellowship, if, if seven or 10 years later you say, you know, I really want to go do something else, you can go do something else. It, you don't have to feel um, that, you know, at, at 23, you've got to say, okay, am I going to do ortho or am I going to do neuro? Am I going to do peds or am I going to do geriatrics? Am I going to do women's health? Or, you know, you don't have to. You, you, you pick one and you do it, but, but it's relatively easy to take a step back and go get the information you need to go in a different direction. You can move from the clinic to academics to research back to the clinic. Uh, we're just really blessed to have so many different options and, and it be fairly flexible and fairly easy to move. You have to be willing to take a, a few risks and maybe for a year or two you earn less money or something, but, but, it, but you can do it. So, um, you know, I, I think we're really lucky. And so I, this is back to not having a five-year plan, I guess. I've just sort of taken the path that's, um, you know, been there in front of me and, um, and I've found all kinds of new things over the years. I think that, that gives a lot of us with, we're scared of burnout. And I think that's something so important that we can change, you know? Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I, I will just add there. I, this is one thing I say to people all the time. In the entire time I've been a physical therapist, and I said this since 1971, there's only been about two years where people really couldn't go get new jobs anytime they wanted them. We've never had um, uh, overemployment. We've never had, you know, you, you can always find a new place to practice. So if you end up in a place where the people aren't what you thought they were going to be, where you're asked to do things that aren't right, just go find a new place to practice. It's really so easy for us to do that. So don't, there's no reason to be burned out, ever. All right, well, transitioning from that, for those of us that are going to graduate soon or just graduated, what are some things we should look for when we begin our job search and some key things we should look for in institutions that we want to work for? Well, I think that the the most important thing you should look for are who are the people I'm going to be learning from? Because that remember I said it takes at least seven years to stop being a novice. During that whole period of time, you're learning, you're going to learn all your career. But in that those first seven years, highest rate of learning. And you want to learn from good people. You want people who will help you stretch and grow and and you and, and have give you the opportunity to mentor. So who are you going to work with? Go and, and talk with them, understand them. Go to places that are going to offer you, uh, that, that have clinical education. A place that says, we're too busy to have students, they're too busy to have a new PT. So you want to go places that have good clinical education programs, that have good access to the literature. What kind of, of um, um, licensing do they have for you to go find uh, full text literature that you need to learn and, and to read from? Uh, what kind of learning opportunities are they going to give you? What's the, what's the budget for continuing education? Those are the things to ask. It's important to know what your salary is going to be and, and weeks of vacation. But, but you're beginning what will be a 50-year career. So make it a good sound foundation. That's, that's perfect. Um, and I know you talked a lot about moral compassing and you're not aligning necessarily. So how do you approach when your moral compass isn't aligning up with your institution? How do you kind of talk to them about their decisions? Well, you have, I think, a lot of different options to think about there. Um, when I teach ethics, which is one of the areas I've taught, I use what's called the RIPS model, which maybe some of the students have heard, um, realm, individual processes, and 
I can't remember what S stands for right this second, but um, it, it says take a look. Do you remember? Did you have this in school? Maybe situation. Situation. I, don't, yeah, I did. That probably is it. Yeah, it probably is. Maybe um, it's an S. But basic is what's happening here? Is this something I'm comfortable talking to people about? And and how do I go about doing that? I always feel that um, talking, getting people to talk out loud about their decision making. So one approach is always, I've noticed this is happening. Can you explain to me what you're thinking about this? And, and let them tell you instead of walking in and saying, I know you're doing this wrong. You know, that, that's not going to get you very far. But um, so what's trying to learn what people are thinking and and then sometimes you have to make some choices so sometimes it's just a small thing that you're uncomfortable with sometimes it's a whole culture of the place and then it's not anything that's illegal necessarily it's just not the culture you like and this is when i leave and go someplace else when you see something illegal then you need to do something about it and that's when you can reach you reach back to your faculty. They can be very helpful to you. Reach out to other mentors that you've developed, other people with more experience in the area who can give you some ideas. Um, but you have to you have to do what you're going to be comfortable with. You can't. I don't see how you can stay when it's clearly an uncomfortable situation when things aren't right. No, I totally agree. I mean. You would hate showing up for work every day, and we didn't go to school for this long to hate what we do. Exactly. That's right. That's right. There's no reason to hate what you do because it's really pretty wonderful what we get to do. Oh, I'm very excited to be a new PT next year. Um, we're about halfway through our chat, so everybody keep asking those questions. We have plenty of time to answer them. Um, so as she keeps giving us some more wisdom and give, keeping us, you know, giving us the wisdom, we're gonna. We're going to be smarter after this and wise, right? <laughs> um, talking about literature, I know sometimes for me it can be really intimidating to find good literature and worrying about the quality. So what is your best tip to do it quickly for students? Because yeah. sometimes it's just such a, you know, intimidating process for us. Right. So first off, I would say that you are in a best, better position than almost anybody else because you are so much you're so familiar with the new literature as students and with the technology that gives you access to the literature. So recognize that if you're feeling hard, it's hard to find it, so is your CI. They're feeling it even more than you are. But um, one of the things I strongly recommend is, and I, I talked about this in my talk, um, this what's called the 6S model. And if you guys wanna look it up, uh, a, a guy named Brian Haynes, H-A-Y-N-E-S, 6S, just put that in Google and read that little article. And um, it, it says, he says, he understands this completely. He's a clinician, a physician writing for other clinicians. And he said, we, we in school taught you, you got to go read all the individual uh, original research. You don't have time to go read the original research that's out there. None of us do. So, so go toward synthesized research. So look for systematic reviews and look for clinical guidelines. They're going to be your best resources that are going to give you more answers faster. And they, they will have had experts put together uh, from the original research. And, and so systematic reviews and clinical guidelines are, are really, um, and some clinical rules, but more clinical guidelines, really the best way. Now, not every question can be answered that way, but that's certainly where I would start. Well, that's some great advice because I know I just sometimes get really bad at finding the research that I want. I think I know, but then I can't find it. So, Sarah, what's the yeah. CPG? 
yes, definitely start with CPGs and see what's there and, and see what that research is and then go and go downward from that rather than, um, you know, going to Medline or Google Scholar and typing in a few words and then 10,000 references later, you still don't have the answer you need. Yeah. And there may, that's the other thing. There may not be the answer you need. You know, not all of our clinical questions are, yet, are answered yet. So that's true. We have a question from Cameron Musumi. He says, I currently have a strong preference for pursuing a residency upon graduating, but have been urged to wait by numerous mentors. Their argument is that I should focus on becoming a strong generalist PT first so that I can better treat all patients before narrowing my scope. What are your thoughts for students like me? <laughs> That's such a good question. I, I, I actually think Perhaps I used to think you should wait a while. And then I, I got to recognize the reality of life. So what happens for most students is you guys finish school, you've got a mound of student debt, you go to work and you discover, oh, look, here's money. I can do things like buy a car. I can get a new couch or a new mattress or, you know, all the things that you put off buying all these years. And you do that for a year or two. And then they say, well, now maybe I'll go do a residency. Oh, look, I'm not gonna earn nearly as much money. And all of a sudden that residency just doesn't look quite as attractive. So I have recognized the reality of that and say, you know, I think residencies, uh, we're gonna get more people doing more residencies if they do them right after school. And, and more, more people doing more residencies is a good thing. Mm -hmm. uh, what I do think is important is to, to look at a residency um, as a, a way of not only learning content in a specialty area, neuro or ortho or whatever it is, but learning about clinical decision-making and the really good residencies focus on clinical decision-making. And those are skills that you can then apply to any area, not just ortho or neuro or geriatrics or whatever. So if you, if you go to that residency and look carefully at that program, if what they're mostly about is teaching you manual skills or very specific uh, specialty content, I'd instead look at ones that give you more emphasis on clinical decision making, clinical reasoning. How do you how do you ask questions of patients? How do you uh, build in your in your thought process moving to a diagnosis? Those kinds of things apply across any any area. So again, as I said earlier, so finish the residency and say, you know, that was great. I learned all this stuff, but now I don't really want to do neuro. So I want to go do something else. You haven't lost a thing by doing that neuro residency. You've gained a great deal of skill. That's a really good way to look at it. Um, I know I want to pursue a residency. I'm not sure exactly when after school, but for me, it's not necessarily about getting the MCS after my name. It's more about being able to have those clinical decision-making skills and being a better clinician faster, I think is how a lot of us are looking at it. <laughs> I hope anyway. Um, Allie Patterson has a question. She says, who did you look for for guidance during your career, especially during those times when your journey took an unexpected turn? Well, I, I, I have been so blessed to have so many wonderful mentors. Um, I've, I feel um, that some of the great names in our profession, so I'll, I'll give you an example, and, and not as many people know who this person is, more people should. So there was a person named Eugene Michaels, who was president of the APTA at the time I became a PT, and then he was subsequently president of the World Confederation, um, and he was on the faculty at Penn. 
And, wow. and so I, you know, as I said, I was at Penn, I was getting my MBA and I went over and asked to be a lab instructor. And the woman who was chair there, Jane Carlin, another wonderful mentor hired me. And, and I went to work on Saturday in September, I went into my office and my office was literally, had been a closet, really, truly. People say that this was really, truly, it had been a closet and it was filthy. It was absolutely filthy. And um, I wandered out into the hallway and it was, you know, it was before school started. And the only other person in the building was Eugene Michaels. Now he had given my graduation speech and I'm thinking, oh my God. I can't. So I, I finally get out my courage to knock on the door and say, Mr. Michaels, can you tell me where I can find some rags? And in five minutes, he was cleaning the office with me. Oh my gosh. And, and I, so that was the start of our relationship. And he was an absolutely wonderful mentor. And I could go to him with any kind of career question and talk to him about it. And um, he, he, he uh, died too early in his life. And so otherwise he'd be around and you guys could see how wonderful he was. Um, but, but recognizing that even people who are at the top of their career and you're way down at the bottom, just beginning, <laughs> they're gonna talk to you. Only one time in my whole career in PT has a person not talked to me when I asked him a question, just said they didn't wanna talk to me. Any other time I've ever asked anyone, and I've I've asked lots of people who are fairly famous, but, you know, Helen Hislop, um, Catherine Worthingham, Catherine Worthingham, I got to meet and ask her, ask her some questions. They're wonderful people, um, and and that's what PTs are like. So don't ever be put off by who somebody is. Reach out to them, send them an email, ask them a question. You're going to find most PTs are really going to reach out to help you because that's what we do. We help people. Yeah, I would completely agree because people like you agree to get on this crazy student thing and talk to me for an hour. So, and I've never had anybody say no to me either. Yeah. I, I truly just love this profession. Everybody's just so willing to give. Um, Alex has a follow-up question. What is your most valuable piece of advice to be a successful mentee? What can we do to better ourselves and ensure our growth? Uh, well, I think asking for help, being willing to ask for help, um, having working with your mentor to to learn from them. So not only saying I need help to tell me how to do blah blah blah, but learning more what they're thinking. And so this is actually advice I give students a lot in the clinic: get those great clinicians that you're watching to talk out loud to you and get your mentors to do that. So ask them to tell you the stories of their careers. Ask them to tell, tell you how they dealt with a problem. Uh, so not just give you help, but listen to what they're doing and get them to talk out loud. You know, one of the things that's, um, when we studied experts, experts have the hardest time explaining what they're doing because it's so ingrained, they're so good at it. So trying to get them to talk to you more about what they're doing and, and probe a bit, nicely and pleasantly about what well, where did you learn to do that why do you do it that way what who, who helped you learn how to do it those are all great questions and, and get people to tell you their stories and they're going to really appreciate that you did that and then they're going to be more willing to assist you when you need assistance so make it a two-way street oh i love that <laughs> uh kyle stapleton has another question and i knew this one would come up 
Are there any books or resources that you recommend on how to be a successful leader slash innovator that may have inspired you? Um, well, I have a really good friend who um, writes wonderful leadership books. Uh, his name is Mike Useem, U-S-E-E-M. And any of his books on leadership, I think, are great books, uh, basically because they're based on research. I'm a big believer in research, and there's a lot of research in, in all of these areas. And then there's a lot of people who write uh, glib books. So I don't support the glib books. I support books that are written, that are based on research. So I would definitely suggest anything Mike Yusim has written. I think they're great on leadership. Um, I think there's a lot you can learn that isn't specifically leadership, but also uh, Adam Grant's book on, um, just forgotten the name of it, but it's in the, it was in the talk. Maybe you remember, Jillian. I have to open my PDF here to remember what the name of the book is. Um, Adam Grant is, a, is great. His book is wonderful. Give me a second here and I'll go find the name of it. I'm so slow. It's my, my mind just goes away sometimes. Give and take. Um, Adam Grant is great. His book is wonderful. Give me a second here and I'll go find the name of it. Okay. We're getting a little uh, premium here. Okay, we all caught up. I'm having a little bit of technical difficulties. For some reason, my thing yeah. isn't showing you, but I can see you on my iPad. So there's going to be a little bit of a okay. lag um, okay. between when you talk and when I can talk. <laughs> okay, all righty. I think I am. <laughs> Sorry, everyone. Is it just too dark? Do you want to turn a light on? <laughs> Um, so Molly says that earlier you mentioned that you should not idolize anyone, um, but is there anyone you keep referring back to in order to stay as driven as you did when you were a fresh PT? Um, I think there, I've made, I've had, as I said, I've had the opportunity to have lots of great mentors and I do go back to them and I do a talk with them and I, and I stay in touch with them and, um, we just, um, I, but I, I can't. I, I, I mean, I, I have great respect for them. Idolizing says is a word that says to me, you don't recognize that people all have pluses and minuses. So I've had, when you work with somebody for a long time, you do recognize that we all have pluses and minuses. I still have this amazing respect and I turn to them for advice. Uh, one of the advantages is that I can, I, because I've met so many wonderful people, I can turn to different people with different questions. And that's great. And that's, I think that's just so important is to find that mentor for yourself that you feel comfortable with to be able to ask questions um, and to kind of go back to whenever you feel stuck. Right, exactly. Well, perfect. Um, I hate to kind of like cut this off short, but um, with these technical difficulties, this is a very weird situation for me.
Um, so I'm just going to kind of do my ending announcements and then kind of let you give your last words of wisdom. So for the announcements tonight, uh, our Student Assembly Board of Directors applications are closing at midnight. So if you haven't submitted them yet, get those in. We are very excited to see who applies and see who the next Student Assembly Board of Directors will be. And those will be elected at National Student Conclave, and that is happening in Providence, Rhode Island from October 11th through the 13th. Um, everybody should come because that's my favorite conference, hands down. Um, it's made for students by students. So other students have put in a lot of effort to put this conference together. I know there's gonna be a residency panel with a lot of residencies from all over the country. Um, there's gonna be pre-con this year, which is really cool, and just lots of really great lectures that are about things that we don't hear in the classroom. Um, early bird registration for that is gonna end on September 14th. Um, the next exchange essay is going to be on August 19th at 7 p.m. I'm going to be interviewing Jimmy Pizzini. He's a PTA, and we're going to talk about developing those strong professional relationships between PTs and PTAs and having that really good team together. And as always, I'm always looking for Pulse contributions. So if you like writing or have an experience you'd like to share, please email pulseptas.org, and I would be happy to have you write for us. So, Dr. Hack, what is your final piece of wisdom you want to share with the student assembly? Oh my goodness, <laughs> choosing choosing a single piece of wisdom. Uh, I don't I don't have one. Uh, I, I, well, let me think. I guess to stay open to opportunity. Maybe that that'll be my my statement to to be uh, as we talked earlier about being open to uh, ideas, listening to a variety of different people. Uh, thinking about a lot of different options before you make up your mind and and look for those opportunities and then just go and enjoy them. That would be it. And Jillian, I'll say thank you very much. You've, you've shown grace under fire here. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for joining me tonight and giving an hour of your time to share your experiences and your lifelong journey through PT with us. Um, I think Definitely. I have everybody behind me thanking you for that. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you. And uh, we'll see you guys next month.